Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Listen to For the Ages, the New York Historical Society's podcast hosted by David M. Rubenstein. In his latest conversation, David speaks with Pulitzer Prize winner Rick Atkinson about his book, The Liberation Trilogy, looking at North Africa during World War II and the harrowing campaigns that took place in Sicily and Italy. And best-selling author Simon Winchester illuminates how humanity's conquest to acquire territory and wield its power has so definitively shaped history. In Land, how the hunger for ownership shaped the modern world. Simon and David have a wide-ranging conversation that examines European imperialism, the dispossession of Native American populations, and Joseph Stalin's brutal collectivization in Soviet territories. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. Episode 423 of The Bowery Boys, Leonard Bernstein's New York, New York. It's a hell of a town! Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is Leonard Bernstein. On the morning of Sunday, November 14th, 1943, at 9 a.m., a young Leonard Bernstein woke up in his Carnegie Hall apartment to the phone ringing. Bernstein was 25 years old and had just been appointed assistant conductor of the New York Philharmonic two months before, in September. He was only 25 years old, and the youngest person and the first American ever to serve as an assistant conductor for the Philharmonic. But on the other end of the line, the associate manager of the Philharmonic, Bruno Zerato, delivered some news that would change Bernstein's career trajectory. The Philharmonic's scheduled conductor, Bruno Walter, had the flu, and Bernstein had to go on that afternoon. He had just a few hours to pull himself together. He didn't even have time for a rehearsal with the Philharmonic. In fact, he had never even conducted the Philharmonic. It would all be a giant leap into prime time for the young conductor, but he was ready. He'd been waiting for his big New York break, and here it was, ready to be broadcast coast to coast, live 
over the radio. Good afternoon. United States Rubber Company again invites you to Carnegie Hall to hear a concert of the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra, of which Artur Rajinsky is musical director. Bruno Walter, who was to have conducted this afternoon, is ill, and his place will be taken by the young American-born assistant conductor of the Philharmonic Symphony, Leonard Bernstein. The concert would be a rousing success. The New York Times headline read, Youthful conductor carries out an exacting program in a sudden emergency. Reveals his authority. Leonard Bernstein was off and conducting. And for more than the next 50 years, he would be at the very forefront of American music as a conductor, a composer, a virtuoso performer, a writer, a TV personality, and a teacher. He was a creative genius and powerhouse, composing symphonies, operas, scoring films, of course, leading the New York Philharmonic and other orchestras around the world, and creating some of the most iconic musical numbers that Broadway has ever produced. And he did almost all of that here in New York. Like so many of us, he moved here as a young man to make it and pretty much stayed here for the rest of his life. He'd have country homes and spend time in a handful of other places, of course, but Bernstein's home was New York. So that is the story that we'll be telling today. Leonard Bernstein's New York. Where did he live? How did he work? Where did he perform? Where did he go out? Where did he play? Of course, Tom and I saw the new film, Maestro, starring Bradley Cooper and Carey Mulligan, directed by Bradley Cooper, and it brings to life many of the things that we'll be discussing. But the movie focuses on Bernstein's personal story and intimate life. That specific angle is not really our objective today, for the most part. Right. We're zooming out a bit and taking a more macro look. Where did Bernstein make his name in New York City, and how did his work change the city? But first, how did he even get here? What year did he arrive? Well, he really moved here for good in 1942. But let's pull back for a moment. Leonard Bernstein was born on August 25th, 1918, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, to Samuel and Jenny Bernstein, who were Jewish immigrants who had come from what is today Ukraine. And when Leonard was a boy, his father ran a beauty supply business in Boston and around New England and did very well, in fact. And it wasn't like his parents raised him to be a musician from birth. (laughs) No, he was supposed to take over the family business. But according to his own retelling, when he was about 10 years old, his Aunt Clara was going through a divorce, and she sent over her upright piano to the Bernstein Mm. house. And he took to it immediately, passionately even. And eventually, after much reluctance, his father supported him and paid for lessons, and for good reason, because Leonard showed extraordinary talent. I mean, by the time he was 14, he was already performing in recitals in Boston. And then, following high school, he'd head off to Harvard for college, you know, living the American dream here. Yes, in 1935. And he studied music and composition with world-class teachers, and also performed in student productions, even accompanied silent films on the piano. I would have loved to have seen that. (laughs) But this was all up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? But was New York an influence yet? Like, was he coming to town yet at this time? 
he was already building friendships with New Yorkers. In, in 1937, after his sophomore year in college, he landed a job as a camp counselor at a Jewish summer camp called Camp Anoda in the Berkshires. And that summer, while he was working on a production of The Pirates of Penzance, uh, he became very close friends with a young actor who had come up from the Bronx to star in the show, a young man named Adolf Green who would remain friends with him for the rest of his life and, of course, become a very important collaborator. Well, you could say that was an out-of-town audition for a friendship, I guess. That would, one that would obviously last. <laughs> yes, one that would do very well um, on Broadway. And a couple of months later, that November, Bernstein would come down to New York for a dance performance at the Guild Theater on West 52nd Street, you know, Greg, the, the theater where Funny Girl recently played. So there he was in 1937 at the Guild, and he just happened to be sitting next to the composer Aaron Copeland, who was <laughs> attending the same show. Just and it so was happened. Cop just wow. so happened. And it was his 37th birthday. And Copeland invited Bernstein over to his party after the show, where Bernstein, who was only, remember, 19 years old at the time, wowed everybody by playing Copeland's very own composition, Piano Variations, by heart. Wow. I mean, just <laughs> let the name dropping begin here, by the way. I mean, it's already, he's 19 years old. He's already got a full Rolodex. But so we have like, Olive Green, and now we have Copeland, the master mm -hmm. American composer of the day, and someone who would obviously be a huge influence. Yes, and he would be a huge friend and a mentor. And let's just take a second to reflect on really how unusual this was, right? Leonard mm -hmm. was a college student, and he was soon corresponding and like learning directly from this major composer. And Copeland even came up to Harvard to see him conduct a production of The Birds, um, a production that Lenny had composed a score for in 1939. Mm. And also that same year, while still at school, Bernstein produced and directed a production of The Cradle Will Rock, um, which was a very political musical uh, that had been mm -hmm. actually shut down in New York a couple years before. But its composer, Mark Blitzstein, also came up to see Leonard's production and spent time with him on the Harvard campus. And Cradle Will Rock, as we talked about in our show a few years ago, actually, on the New Deal and the arts in the city mm -hmm. was unapologetically left-leaning and pro-union. Right. Very audacious for the time. Mm -hmm. So we see that political element taking shape in Bernstein as well already. So then he graduated and he moved to New York and he moved in with his friend Adolph Green into his apartment in the village at 61 East 9th Street, which Greg is actually literally around the corner from Grace Church, which we just talked about. Oh, well, it all comes back to Grace, I guess. <laughs> I wonder if, if he ever attended any of their free organ recitals or even, ha you know, or even played the organ. <laughs> climbed some up. Sometime for free. Yes. <laughs> took over the organ. Um, well, he had he moxie. Did, he might have done it. <laughs> yes. He did also have some free time, so it's possible. I mean, he was looking for work. <laughs> And Adolf was, was part of a five-person comedy troupe at the time called The Reviewers that performed at the Village Vanguard, but at the time was just a performance space, you know, later became a jazz club, that had just opened a couple of years earlier in 1935 over on 7th Avenue. So about a five-minute walk from the apartment. 
And two of the other members of the group, by the way, two of the other reviewers were Betty Comden and Judy Holliday. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> <laughs> but he floored them all by hammering out everything, you know, on the piano, uh, from symphonic works to Tin Pan Alley tunes. And he did actually accompany them for some of their performances. We love But now then, there was a quick detour because Bernstein was kind of searching for the next move. Mm-hmm. And Copeland, his mentor, with whom he was now even collaborating a bit, encouraged Bernstein to really focus on his conducting. And so Leonard applied and then was accepted into the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia to study conducting, which he did with incredible gusto. And the next summer in 1940, his conducting mentor there, Serge Kusevitsky, started the Berkshire Music Center, which would become known as Tanglewood and is, of course, still around today. And Lenny was there from the very beginning with Copeland and others that very first year. And I mean, again, he was only like 22 years old. (laughs) He's just already swimming with all of these classic musicians of the 20th century. It's amazing. Yeah, it's not a story for people who are, you know, lacking in self-esteem or feeling a little (laughs) (laughs) uncertain of their own trajectory, but I digress. Lots of confidence here. (laughs) But Lenny would continue to be a major figure at Tanglewood for decades, for his entire life. Yes. So how long did he study in Philadelphia? Another year. He graduated in 1941. And then under a little pressure from dad, who really wanted him to settle down and, you know, make some money in this music business by teaching piano, he set up shop in Boston, tried to give piano lessons. Nobody came, um, even printed out a little, you know, business card. Fortunately, really, for American musical history, he didn't have any business. And (laughs) he seemed actually a little bit too flamboyant and extroverted, I think, for Boston. And so (laughs) he moved to New York for good in the fall of 1942. I know so many flamboyant people from Boston who moved to New York. (laughs) It's a a a well-trodden path. (laughs) Some of our best friends. (laughs) So, I mean, being extroverted and flamboyant can actually help you here. (laughs) Yes, they can actually be your calling card. Mm -hmm. So in 1942... The United States had already entered the war. Was he concerned about being drafted into the army? He, he was the age for that. Yes, he was. Uh, but he had a deferment because of his asthma that he suffered from throughout his life. So he stayed in New York, where he landed a job at a music publishing company, Harms Whitmark, where he transcribed jazz music into sheet music for piano and also played piano for dance classes. All very good training for his later career. And then in his free time, he also managed to compose his very first symphony, the Jeremiah Symphony, today also called Bernstein's Symphony Number no. 1. 
and it was composed actually for a symphonic contest, which he lost. But his first big win was just around the corner because the next summer in 1943, Leonard was invited by the conductor of the Philharmonic Society of New York, Arthur Radzinski, to become his assistant conductor. The Philharmonic Society, or what today we simply call the New York Philharmonic. Right, and which was based in Carnegie Hall. And it would continue to be there until 1962. And this position as assistant conductor also helped Leonard in another way. He could live there. They, they had and still have studio apartments at Carnegie Hall. And so Lenny moved in. So he, he already has a great address, and he's just <laughs> started best. his career. And I imagine this assistant conducting gig took up most of his time. Well, it, it was a lot of work. I don't know how much he slept. I'm thinking mm-hmm. he didn't sleep very much because he did have to know all the scores well enough, you know, to step in if he was called at a moment's notice. But mm-hmm. that never seemed to happen. Nobody remembered it ever having happened, you know. So he also spent time composing his own projects and seeing his friends perform, all of those friends, you know, and making mm-hmm. new friends. Like, for example, another extremely talented young man named Jerome Robbins, who was the same age as Leonard and who at the same time was working on a little ballet and needed a score for it. Hmm. I'll get to that little ballet, by the way, in a moment. Yes. So he was doing that. And then on November 13th, 1943, a song cycle that he had composed called I Hate Music was being performed at the town hall on West 43rd Street, which was a really big deal. And his parents and his brother Burton came down for the event. And after that concert, Lenny stayed out carousing, as one does, not returning until 4 o'clock in the morning. Hey, he was 25 years old. We've all been there. It's totally. <laughs> it's New York City, you know. <laughs> totally relatable. Except that it was just five hours later at 9 a.m., when the phone rang. And when Leonard Bernstein received the news that he'd be going on stage that afternoon to conduct, for the very first time, the New York Philharmonic in several pieces that he'd never even rehearsed before. (laughs) That's when you always get those phone calls after a rough night. (laughs) (laughs) Was he even able to prepare at all? Well, he ran over to the hotel where Bruno Walter, the guest conductor who was sick, was staying, and he found Bruno all wrapped up in blankets and and quite sick. But they managed to go over the score quickly together. And then, as Bernstein recounted later in an interview, quote, when it came to the time that very day, all I can remember is standing there in the wings, shaking and being so scared. I strode out, and I don't remember a thing from that moment. I don't even remember intermission. Until the sound of people standing and cheering and clapping. Well, he may not remember much, but the press reports the next day certainly recounted everything in very specific detail. Oh, the New York Times ran a front-page article that started, quote... 
a nationwide radio audience and several thousand persons in Carnegie Hall were treated to a dramatic musical event yesterday afternoon when the 25-year-old assistant conductor of the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra, Leonard Bernstein, substituted on a few hours' notice for Bruno Walter and led the orchestra through its entire program. Enthusiastic applause greeted the performance of the youthful musician who went through the ordeal with no signs of strain or nervousness. In other words, Leonard Bernstein was in. Follow along with us as we watch him go on the town after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. 
Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. On April 18th, 1944, five months after his Carnegie Hall debut, a rather surprising new show debuted at the staid old Metropolitan Opera House, that old house down on 39th Street. Not an opera, but a ballet featuring three dancing sailors. It more or less brought down the house. According to the New York Daily News, last night's dance addicts at the pompous Metropolitan Opera House got a large order of boogie-woogie, bumps, grinds, beer-drinking, gum-chewing, and wenching when they ogled fancy-free It was 25 minutes of strictly American ballet. And when it was over, the crowd rocked the temple of art in raucous approval. The review also makes note of the three 25-year-olds responsible for creating Fancy Free. Scenic designer Oliver Smith, choreographer Jerome Robbins, and of course, its composer, Leonard Bernstein. Fancy free at the old Metropolitan Opera House. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. I think that those dancing sailors would have scandalized the old Gilded Age socialites <laughs> who had built the old place. Although I think that maybe Bertha Russell would have been really into it. Oh, I think so. Yes. Um, well, my favorite piece of trivia about Bernstein and Fancy Free, this is kind of amazing, is that it features a portion of music that he wrote just to make a little pocket change, a little money, for a line of chorus girls at a 57th Street nightclub called Rio Bamba, featuring the cabaret debut of a young Frank Sinatra. So portions <laughs> of the chorus line song Rio Bamba were in Fancy Free. Like this is like this is a big shakeup for the <laughs> Metropolitan Opera House, needless to say. Did you say that Fancy Free was 25 minutes long? Yes, actually. There were other ballets on the program, of course, to fill it out. But Fancy Free was the one that everybody was talking about. And, you know, given the subject matter, it seemed pretty well suited for another big jump to the Broadway stage. Oliver Smith thought that they should actually expand the piece and turn it into a genuine Broadway musical. Bernstein did agree as long as they could fill out the show, you know, with other types of songs. Can't be a 25-minute musical. And so the lyrics were written by his old friends from the reviewers, Betty Comden and Adolph Green. (laughs) This is going to be fun. So what happened? So they maximized the buzz off of Fancy Free. You know, they got a lot of goodwill for that. So they got funding because of that, even luring in a Hollywood movie studio, MGM, who paid a quarter of a million dollars. And this is a very revolutionary idea. I mean, people do it all the time today. They paid a quarter of a million dollars for the movie rights before the musical was even finished. Wow. What's extraordinary to me is how extremely fast they produce what would become one of the greatest musicals in history. It's kind of unbelievable. Less than nine months after Fancy Free premiered at the Met, the revamped show 
debuted at the Adelphi Theater on 54th Street on December 28th, 1944. But now it had a new name on the town. In it, beneath the Broadway life. But we hear on our chest to what we like the rest of the night. Sight, sight, sight! New York, New York, a hell of a town. The Bronx is up and the battery's down. The people ride in a hole in the ground. New York, New York, it's a hell of a town. The Adelphi Theater, and by the way, that's where the New York Hilton stands today in Midtown. And how many Tony Awards did On the Town win? Believe it or not, none, because the Tony Awards didn't exist until 1947. (laughs) Another three years. (laughs) Yes. And by the way, two years later, in 1949, MGM would at last release the film version of On the Town, famously so, with Gene Kelly in the lead role. And Frank Sinatra, of course. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that is just a quintessential New York City film from the 1940s. I mean, it's sweeping, you know, from the Empire State Building out to Coney Island. However, the film did not feature most of Leonard Bernstein's music, which was deemed too difficult, believe it or not, for mainstream audiences. And so some really big numbers did not make it to the film, including, I think, one of our favorites, right? The song (laughs) Carried Away. I try hard to stay controlled, but I get carried away. Try to act aloof and cold, but I get carried away. Carried away, carried away. One of the great numbers, one of the great earworms, really. Try getting that one out. <laughs> but can we just pause before we get carried away to just, <laughs> too late, ref- <laughs> to just <laughs> reflect upon all of these achievements? I mean, Bernstein is already composing orchestral works, ballets, Broadway scores, <laughs> songs for chorus lines, mm-hmm. often at the same time. And he's also still conducting. It's unbelievable. To quote from Paul R. Laird in his book, Critical Lives, Leonard Bernstein, quote, Bernstein was demonstrating his huge talents in the five areas where he would become famous, pianist, commentator, conductor, composer in classical genres, and composer of a Broadway musical. Certainly musicians with multiple talents had exploded onto musical scenes before Bernstein, but never so publicly or in such diverse areas in the United States, unquote. And in the midst of all of this, in 1945, just months after the Broadway debut of On the Town, Bernstein was chosen to be the head conductor of the New York City Symphony Orchestra. The New York City Symphony Orchestra. That's not the Philharmonic. No, no. This orchestra, the New York City Symphony Orchestra, was founded in 1927 as an affordable classical music experience and featured amateur musicians. And then by the 1940s, it was championed, it was sort of like re-energized, believe it or not, by Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. Hmm. So Bernstein led this orchestra for several years and gave New Yorkers a preview of that astonishing 
energy and creativity that he would bring to his classical music conducting. The orchestra played all over the city, but one of its key venues, I think, interestingly enough, was the New York City Center on Mm -hmm. West 55th Street near Carnegie Hall. It's a space built by the Shriners in the 1920s, but then was converted into a music hall thanks to the personal intervention of Mayor LaGuardia. And so, by the fall of 1945, LaGuardia's chosen conductor here first performed in LaGuardia's renovated hall. The New York Times gleefully reported on the event, quote, The audience rejoiced in Bernstein's temperament and sensibility, in his youth and his instinctive command of the orchestra. The sum of it was the accomplishment of a young musician of singular and unquestionable gifts, unquote. I read about this concert and something really jumped out at me. The concert included several time-tested classical works, Mm -hmm. but he also included a piece by Aaron Copland, who was his mentor and friend, but that was also contemporary music, you know, Mm -hmm. written by an American composer. And artists like Copland and Bernstein, as well as, you know, other creators, Virgil Thompson, Roger Sessions, and many others were part of a movement to bring a genuine American music voice into genres that were still dominated by European composers. By the 1940s, the most popular form of music in the United States, of course, was jazz. Jazz had already made its jump into venues that were more associated with European music, like, for instance, Carnegie Hall, which had jazz concerts in the 1920s, and Black artists playing music composed by American Black composers took to the hall really as early as 1912, okay? Mm -hmm. Artists like Duke Ellington were already mixing up jazz and traditional European classical music. And of course, George Gershwin... Let's not forget him. Uh, let's not. Yeah, he introduced classical audiences to a jazzy new American sound as well. But Bernstein would go even further and create what author Barry Seldes described as, quote, an organic music that would express a new and vital American nationalism to connect every American to another, regardless of region, race, ethnicity, class, or religion. Unquote. Hmm. Music as a sort of political and social statement. So mm-hmm. that's interesting because Broadway musicals, you know, like On the Town, which can feel a little bit old fashioned today, sure, just today, yeah. nothing wrong, mm-hmm. kind of like vintage Broadway, were actually then probably almost avant garde in their day. Not only in its sound, but in its presentation. So that Broadway production of On the Town, for instance, featured the Japanese dancer Sono Asato in a principal role. She played Ivy. And several Black actors and dancers were in the cast. You know, it was a small but significant stride for a mainstream Broadway production. Which was not carried over into the Hollywood film version, but no. anyway, moving on. <laughs> yes. moving on. Well, think of, thinking about music in a political and social way would greatly inform some of Bernstein's career decisions in the years after the end of World War II. After all, he was a prominent American Jewish conductor. While prior generations of artists 
in his position might have disguised their identities a little bit, like those parts of themselves, he would actually make it part of his work, would be ingrained in his work, and would develop projects that would honor his own Jewish identity. Furthermore, he performed for and spoke out about many progressive causes of the day, especially civil rights, union activities, and other causes which, you know, by the late 1940s and early 50s here had actually become dangerous associations to have. Right, because by then, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, or HUAC, was holding hearings, you know, and the entertainment industry was blacklisting artists who were believed to have communist ties or allegiances. Mm -hmm. Was Bernstein ever blacklisted? Well, he was as close as one could get to being blacklisted. At one point in 1953, he even had his passport revoked. You know, I just happened to be looking through his uh, FBI file the other day. and um, I'm sorry, wait, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. Who exactly does one call, Greg, to get Bernstein's FBI file? <laughs> well, Fox Mulder? Dana Scully? Clarice Starling? Uh, no, 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 no. It's actually, it's available online now, thanks to the Bernstein family. Uh, ah. And it's a, an extensively researched list of Every questionable club he ever joined, every notable petition that he ever signed. Mm. He was being watched so very closely, as were many of his associates, all of his friends, uh, Aaron Copeland, Judy Holliday testified, Jerome Robbins even named names, as they say. However, men like Robbins, Copeland, and Bernstein had another issue to be worried about. As Jerome Robbins later said, as a justification for giving up the names of his friends, quote, it was my homosexuality I was afraid would be exposed. Right, yeah, because not only was there a red scare, you know, witch hunt in the 1950s, but there was also a lavender scare, you mm -hmm. know, where the federal government went after prominent people who were believed to be gay or lesbian or bisexual. And Leonard Bernstein... You know, I think if we tried to apply modern terminology to him today, I think he would be considered bisexual. He had relationships with men and mm -hmm. women. Yeah, and now I think we just need to dip a little bit into Bernstein's personal life, because in 1951, he married the actress Felicia Montalegre, whom he'd actually met several years before. The two were incredibly close. She was also aware of his relationships with men, which would continue throughout the course of their marriage. Yeah, I think that we would consider it today to be a very modern marriage, right? Mm -hmm. It was, on some level, honest and very open, which isn't to say it was easy, of course. Where did they live? In 1951, they moved to the Osborne apartment, so catty-cornered from Carnegie Hall conveniently and obviously close from his last apartment. The Osborne was constructed in the 1880s, and they would end up living here through the whole decade until 1960. And they started a beautiful family. They had three children. Their daughter, Jamie, was born in 1952, Alexander in 1955, and Nina in 1962. And so this, shall we say, complex life of his put him in a precarious position because of all these government witch hunts. 
In fact, in the early 1950s, as he was you know, starting up his family here, he actually took a break from guest conducting gigs, partially because of the threat of exposure during this period. This gave him time to compose, and honestly, while it must have been a very stressful and frustrating time as our culture or society, we do get some incredible works of American music. Would you like a little rundown of some of his greatest <laughs> hits of the early 1950s? <laughs> I think I can guess the first one in 1953. What is Wonderful Town? <laughs> yes, Wonderful Town, about two sisters living in Greenwich Village, based on a play by Joseph Fields and Jerome Chodorov, with Bernstein doing the music, and of course, on lyrics, his old village pals, Betty Compton and Adolph Green. The show debuted at the Winter Garden Theater in the winter of 1953 and ran for over two years. On your left, Washington Square, right in the heart of Greenwich Village. By what trees smell that air, painters and pigeons in Washington Square. On your right, Waverly Place, bit of Paris in Greenwich Village. Now that musical won Tony Awards, right? Uh, oh yes, yes. It won five Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Best Actress for... Rosalind Russell. <laughs> In 1954, Bernstein finally went to Hollywood in a big way composing the score for a crime drama about corruption along the New Jersey waterfront in a little film called On the Waterfront. And this was, in fact, his only original work that was not adapted from the stage to be in a Hollywood film. Mm -hmm. And the film won many Oscars, including Best Picture. Did Bernstein win for score? No, he lost to the score of the John Wayne film, The High and the Mighty. <laughs> But <laughs> okay. Fortunately, he had another big project that he was cooking up around the same time. Yeah, he did complete a couple operettas in this period, the most famous being 1956's Candide, with a libretto by Lillian Hellman, uh, Dorothy Parker's old frenemy. Parker, though, even worked on some of the text for the show, which is interesting, but it wasn't a big hit. It certainly wasn't a big hit like the other stuff. Well, Candy, uh, the book had issues. Um, there's a mm -hmm. lot of story happening there. Uh, but wow, what a score. I mean, what a finale. Nothing beats Make Your Garden Grow. Nothing. I'm crying just thinking about it. And make a Well, wipe away those tears, Tom, or grab, actually just grab some more tissues, because the following year, Bernstein's next show reunited him with Jerome Robbins and then paired him with a young lyricist named Stephen Sondheim, West Side Story. And with halfway there, hold my hand and I'll take you there. 
I'm just going to pass out now. <laughs> Greg. <laughs> you're, okay, you're, we, you're flooding with tears now. <laughs> we did an entire show on the making of West Side Story a couple years ago. But in the unlikely event that you're not familiar with West Side Story, the Broadway musical or the movie, it's essentially a retelling of Romeo and Juliet that is set on the west side of Manhattan, the neighborhood known as San Juan Hill. So here we have Leonard Bernstein by the late 1950s attached to some of the greatest American musicals, many of which were explicitly about New York City, On the Town, Wonderful Town, and West Side Story. But what's really interesting to me is that Bernstein's greatest professional chapter actually comes after this, <laughs> because in 1957, same year as the debut of West Side Story, he gets another phone call, another phone call from the New York Philharmonic, this one asking him to jointly perform the role of music director for the orchestra with Dimitri Metropolis. But then the following year, Metropolis would step down from the chair. Making Leonard Bernstein, at last, the sole music director of the New York Philharmonic. And from here, he would change the sound of American music and the shape of the music scene in New York City. We'll get to Maestro Bernstein after this. So in January 1958, Bernstein became the musical director and conductor of the New York Philharmonic. He was, he was picking up the baton again, if you will, from the podium that had made his career just 15 years earlier. Oh, but I mean, what a difference these 15 years made, right? I mean, he had done so much since that first moment. And by the way, there are so many other things that we haven't even mentioned, no, right? Yeah. Traveling the world, conducting other orchestras, composing other major works, and also teaching. Mm -hmm. He was a visiting professor at Brandeis during the 1950s. And really, he always had a passion for teaching others about music. He was sort of a musical ambassador of sorts. He had so much energy, exuberance, you know, for mm -hmm. this subject. He was so passionate. And he was still young, though. The students must have loved him, right? It was like coming from this very contemporary person. And he was also funny, right? So now installed then as, as the musical director of America's most revered orchestra, he turned his attention to something called the Young People's Concerts, which the orchestra had begun performing in the 1920s. These were family concerts, you know, that included lectures about the music and where the conductor would explain how music worked and why it was important. All the subjects that Bernstein loved. <laughs> he did, yes. And he loved something else, something very modern in the late 1950s, 
television. Bernstein had already given a number of televised concerts in the mid-50s on the CBS TV arts show called Omnibus. The first was in 1954, and he did several more. But now, as the director of the Philharmonic, he decided to televise those young people's concerts on CBS and bring them to a new audience, a huge new national audience. Like a global audience, actually. Yes, and, and distributed throughout the world. And it all started with his very first young people's concert on January 18th, 1958, with a concert entitled, What Does Music Mean? Now we're going to take another giant step toward finding out our answer to what music means. And this is a really big step. We're getting closer now to the answer. Because now we're going to forget all about those pieces that try to tell stories or paint pictures. We've had enough of that. And we're going to listen to music that describes emotions, feelings, like pain, happiness, loneliness, anger, love. I guess most music is like that. And the better it is, the more it will make you feel those emotions that the composer felt when he was writing. It's so good. Listeners should watch that whole clip on YouTube. Actually, there's many, yeah. many clips of the, of the Young People's Concerts on YouTube. You can see Bernstein explaining it all. And you, they have these close-ups of children in the audience. They're like enwrapped, focused <laughs> on every word. It's so cool. And you can also see, I mean, this this also has to be pointed out, Greg, that Leonard Bernstein was really handsome, right? He was <laughs> he was dashing and he darted all over the stage. You know, he would conduct and then he would like talk and smile and then run over and hammer some music out just off the top of his head without any sheet music. And he was also funny. He was like cracking jokes. He was not a boring music teacher and he made it all so easy to understand. So it's easy then to see why Bernstein and these concerts were so popular. Well, I'm sure that being a father helped him re relate to some of these viewers, right? The the children in his audience. Absolutely. I, I just finished his daughter, Jamie Bernstein's amazing 2018 book, Famous Father Girl, a memoir of growing up Bernstein. We both read it. I, I highly mm -hmm. recommend it. It's such a fascinating and really intimate look inside their family. Uh, she describes her father really throughout the book as this kind of powerhouse, this dynamo, right, who was extremely gifted, often maddening, but bursting just with talent and with love. And she was really right there in the middle of everything. And she took notes, too. So it's an amazing look. Anyway, she explains that her father would test out, you know, these young people's scripts on her and on her siblings. He had his own little television audience right there at home. Um, and how long? His own little young people. <laughs> and how long would he host these young people's concerts? Well, on and off until 1972. He hosted and conducted 53 of these concerts until long after, you know, he was musical director of the Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they are still around today. It's rather awesome, I think, to consider how many young people were exposed to great classical music and became fans of classical music 
because of Leonard Bernstein. And I'm 100% certain that many of our listeners right now have fond memories of watching Leonard Bernstein yeah. hold these concerts. Some might have been in the audience. Some might have been those mm. enwrapped children, you know? But yeah. I do like thinking of him practicing his scripts on his own children in what was probably a very busy home. Well, and yeah, and he and Felicia were also busy, right, throwing dinner parties, or just providing a, a home base, right, for this this increasingly large group of creative friends and collaborators who always seem to be drifting through their fabulous Park Avenue penthouse, <laughs> their duplex at 895 Park Avenue at 79th Street, you know, or, or we're joining them at their country house out in Fairfield, Connecticut. And again, just a list of famous folks, many we've already mentioned, Comden and Green, Aaron Copeland, Jerome Robbins, Mike Nichols was extremely close, Stephen Sondheim, Lauren Bacall, Betty Bacall, as they called her. Oh, yeah. She's coming back into the story later, of course. Um, and then, of course, the even the Kennedys. The list goes on and on. And as you read any of the accounts of his life that are out there, you see how incredibly social and extroverted he was and how he thrived in New York City. He needed New York because it was the cultural capital of the United States, maybe even of the world. And these people were all here. And you see how, as his career grew, he was increasingly in the center, the epicenter of the cultural scene. Then as he got older, aging into another title, people started referring to him, I think, more reverently as maestro. I mean, he deserved that title. He composed, conducted, performed. I mean, he, that's what is a maestro if not that? He was presenting season after season of concert with the Philharmonic and introducing American audiences to new works and lesser-known works, sometimes challenging works by, by difficult composers. One in particular that he championed was Gustav Mahler. I didn't realize that Mahler was such an outsider at the time. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that Leonard Bernstein helped make him more kind of mainstream, if you will. I mean, he's mm -hmm. still difficult and intellectual, but he became fashionable. And it's a point that Bernstein's old friend Stephen Sondheim couldn't help joking about in his song, The Ladies Who Lunch, from Company. Another long, exhausting day, another thousand dollars, a matinee, a pinter play, perhaps a piece of Mahler's, I'll drink to that. And one for Mahler. And one for Mahler. Your stretch. Well, I could do a better job later. I need a martini to be a proper stretch. <laughs> but I did always wonder about that connection. Uh, and remind me, how long did the Philharmonic stay at Carnegie Hall? Like, when did Lincoln Center come into the picture? Lincoln Center would open in 1962, when he and the orchestra opened Philharmonic Hall in, in mm -hmm. September of 62. And that, of course, has been its home ever since, and the hall has been renamed a couple of times. It's now David Geffen Hall. And you mentioned our previous show, you know, about the making of West Side Story a few minutes ago, but I just wanted to point out that there is something really crazy, even I think you could say meta, 
about mm-hmm. the fact that Bernstein was now leading the Philharmonic on the same ground, right, where he had set West Side Story years before. And in fact, movie producers had held up the real-life demolition of some of the old buildings in the neighborhood in order to shoot the movie. And now here he was working on the very same spot. But the 1960s, of course, would also see great American tragedies, including the assassination of his friends John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy. He dedicated his third symphony in 1963 to JFK. It's called Kaddish, which refers to a Jewish prayer chanted at services for the dead. The work is dark and difficult, performed by orchestra with soloists and choir and narrator. It premiered on December 10th, 1963 in Tel Aviv. And at the U.S. premiere the next month, Bernstein's wife, Felicia, performed the role of the narrator. Angry, wrinkled old majesty, I want to pray. I want to say Kaddish. The New York Times reported the day after the Tel Aviv premiere, Quote, Leonard Bernstein won prolonged applause and favorable press criticism after leading the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra tonight in the world premiere of his third symphony, Kaddish. The symphony, Mr. Bernstein's first since 1954, was written during the last three summers. It is European in tradition with Jewish and American jazz overtones and some orchestral effects. Unfortunately, It didn't prove to be quite as beloved once performed back in the U.S., but regardless, it also shows that Bernstein really got around. During the 1960s, he was also very busy taking the Philharmonic on tour and conducting other orchestras and making recordings with the Philharmonic. Oh, ref, right, the records, the recordings. (laughs) Let's not forget he was also conducting for recordings on Columbia Records. He was a recording star. Get this, between 1956 and 1979, he recorded more than 500 compositions with Columbia Masterworks Records, which is now Sony Music Entertainment. And 455 of those were with the New York Philharmonic. Thanks to his work with the Philharmonic and the legacy of his Broadway work, by the 1970s, Bernstein was one of the most respected and celebrated artists in the world. He would also strengthen his ties to many social causes, even using his podium as a way to call attention to those issues. But this did leave him open to a bit of criticism and even derision from some quarters. On January 14th, 1970, Felicia Bernstein hosted a lavish party here at their penthouse Park Avenue apartment. That party was to raise money for the legal fees for the 21 members of the Black Panther Party who had been arrested the year prior and were being held for almost nine months without trial. Okay, so she was bringing a bunch of wealthy people into a room and having them donate to a notable cause, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is what Upper East Side penthouses are made for, (laughs) right? You know, yes, that has happened and it happens still. But some in the media thought that this was all pretty absurd. It was quickly 
criticized by the New York Times, which claimed the party, quote, mocked the memory of Martin Luther King Jr. Then came a notorious New York Magazine article by Tom Wolfe entitled Radical Chic, That Party at Lenny's, which went on to trivialize the event even further. Quote, there seemed to be a thousand stars above and a thousand stars below, a room full of stars, a penthouse duplex full of stars, a Manhattan tower full of stars. And now in this season of radical chic, the Black Panthers, unquote, to quote from Jamie Bernstein's memoir. It's likely that to this day, Tom Wolfe may not understand the degree to which his snide little piece of neo-journalism rendered him a veritable stooge for the FBI, nor may Wolfe truly comprehend the depth of the damage he wreaked on my family. It doesn't seem like such a stretch to lay Mummy's precipitous decline and even demise at the feet of Mr. Wolfe, unquote. Well... Lenny, at least, had the escape right of his international acclaim. He could leave New York, head out yeah, on the road. Right. And yes, the following year, he conducted his 1,000th concert with the New York Philharmonic. And then down in Washington, D.C. on September 5th, 1971, he inaugurated the brand new Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts with one of his most famous, though divisive, new works called Mass, a theater piece for singers, players, and dancers. A performance that was then later restaged in New York the following year at the Metropolitan Opera House at Lincoln Center. Make it up as you go along, laudalaude. Sing like you like to sing. There are some really lovely parts of that work. I recommend the second movement in it called A Simple Song. There's definitely some contemporary Broadway influences of the early 70s happening right there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a bit like a missing Godspell number, which makes sense, Greg, because not only did Bernstein listen to and love you know, much of the new Broadway music that was happening and pop music too, but many lyrics for Mass were written by Stephen Schwartz whose musical Godspell had just debuted at the Cherry Lane Theater off-Broadway just a few months earlier. Hmm. And, and he was also about to debut his follow-up, Pippin, the very next year. <laughs> wow. A thousand stars, Tom. A thousand just, Broadway stars. We're just pushing them into the story, <laughs> even if they don't belong there. And were the Bernsteins still living at the Park Avenue penthouse at this time? Believe it or not, even after all that hullabaloo with Tom Wolfe, they were still living there. But by the spring of 1974, they moved on, drumroll please, to the Dakota Apartments. <laughs> the Dakota! More bold-faced names. Mm -hmm. The legendary apartment building on the Upper West Side that we frequently visit on the show. In our Beatles show, because John Lennon and Yoko Ono live there. And also in our Lauren Bacall show from 2020, mm -hmm. because... 
she was, of course, a longtime resident of the Dakota. Yeah, as as you mentioned, Lauren, or I'm sorry, Betty, was a great friend of the Bernsteins. Mm -hmm. The family even stayed at her place um, while they were moving in. The Bernsteins moved into apartment 23 on the second floor. Lauren, by the way, was two floors up. And in addition, Lenny had apartment 92 under the roof as a studio. To quote again from Jamie's memoir, quote, In November, we discovered the feature of the new Dakota apartment that erased every shadow. The Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade came streaming down Central Park West, right below our second floor windows. The signature giant balloons floated just above us from our pair of tiny balconies. We could almost touch Snoopy and Superman and the cat in the hat, unquote. <laughs> it really does not get any more New York than that. And living at the Dakota really put Bernstein just a stone's throw from Lincoln Center, where he still served as the laureate conductor with the Philharmonic and would occasionally stage other works at some of the other performance halls here. For instance, in 1974, the year he moved in, Bernstein presented a new ballet with his old friend Jerome Robbins, presented by the New York City Ballet, but this production was a far different show from Fancy Free. This was an adaptation of S. Ansky's play about the possession of a young woman by a mysterious figure from Jewish mythology known as a Dybbuk. Later, the music was renamed the Dybbuk Variations, and it became one of his most challenging and signature compositions. According to author Paul R. Laird, quote, the ballet is a potent reminder of Bernstein's Jewishness, and it comes as one of the largest statements on his religious background. And was Felicia Bernstein still around and working during this period? The, the quote from Jamie that you read earlier alluded to something quite troubling there. Yeah, she was still working. She even performed at the Metropolitan Opera in 1973 and did occasional work on Broadway and television. She and Lenny, though, separated in 1976. But he returned home at the news that she had been diagnosed with lung cancer. Felicia Montalegre Bernstein died at their East Hampton home on June 16th, 1978, with Leonard by her side. And now we're also reaching the end of our story here as well, Leonard Bernstein's New York, because he was still incredibly active for like another dozen years. But you could say that with his wife gone and his children grown, he found himself more and more on the road and, of course, up in Tanglewood uh, in the Berkshires. Yeah, he was conducting all over the world, from Israel to Vienna and even East Berlin, literally as the wall came down. An extraordinary concert, yes. Mm -hmm. His biggest achievement creatively was probably the opera A Quiet Place, which premiered with the Houston Grand Opera in 1983. But I wanted to end on a couple more significant New York moments because they reflect another kind of merging of Bernstein's identity and his art. The first one is 
in particular quite curious, for it involves Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Oh, that's rather surprising. Did did Bernstein conduct their orchestra, their their circus band? Uh, he did, indeed. On April 30th, 1983, Bernstein was at the podium conducting the national anthem with opera diva Shirley Verrett. But this was not a normal evening of music and circus stunts. This was a fundraiser for the gay men's health crisis, which had been founded just the year before in Greenwich Village at reports of a disease that was killing gay men, a disease that would later be known as AIDS. This was one of the most public events at this time associated with this group. Bernstein was there essentially to lend his celebrity icon status at a time when so little was known or understood about the disease. Larry Kramer later wrote, quote, Leonard Bernstein walking across the length of Madison Square Garden in his white dinner jacket to conduct the circus orchestra in the national anthem while 18,000 gay men and their friends and families cheered was one of the most moving moments I have ever experienced, unquote. And of course, there's, there's actually one great annual event um, that still takes place in the city that's associated with Bernstein, and that is the Concert for Peace. He actually produced many such programs with that name over the decades. The first at Washington National Cathedral in 1973, at the end of the Vietnam War. Well, on December 31st, 1983, Bernstein presented a New Year's Eve edition of his Concert for Peace at a cathedral closer to home to New Yorkers, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And that concert is still held in his honor every year at the cathedral. It's happening this year, in fact. Mm -hmm. And that's probably an evergreen statement, Greg. So we don't even need to put a date on this. It's <laughs> yes, probably, it's, whenever you're listening, yes. there's probably a concert for peace taking place at the Cathedral of St. John mm -hmm. the Divine. Among the performers, among the roster, there was actually a talk by Carl Sagan, the mm. astronomer, to give you, you know, some idea of the scope of that particular event. Wow. On October 9th, 1990, Bernstein announced his retirement from the New York Philharmonic, capping a career which spanned 47 years and 1,244 concerts, not to mention hundreds of recordings. Five days later, Bernstein died in his apartment at the Dakota. Today, he's buried at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, in a modest spot next to a bench with the Bernstein name on it, from where you can actually sit and look out over Brooklyn, look out over the city. And if you're looking for something to listen to while sitting there, may I recommend Gustav Mahler's Fifth Symphony? Because Bernstein is buried with a copy of the score, as well as a baton, a lucky penny, a piece of amber, and a copy of one of his favorite books, Alice in Wonderland. Jamie Bernstein writes, 
After the speeches and prayers, the casket was loaded into the hearse outside the Dakota gates. Everyone who had been upstairs piled into a long line of limousines, and the cortege made its way to Brooklyn. The construction workers along the FDR drive waved their hard hats as we passed. Bye, Lenny. Daddy would have loved that. Now, I just wanted to add that this year I was a commentator on a very interesting, very unique podcast miniseries produced by WQXR called The NY Phil Story Made in New York regarding the extraordinary history of the Philharmonic. And there's an entire episode just devoted to Leonard Bernstein and guess, Tom, who the host of the entire miniseries is. Jamie Bernstein. Yes, I can't believe it. You're on the same podcast. Mm -hmm. You're on a few episodes, in fact, with Bernstein. Yeah, not in the same room. I never met her. It was a big production, after all. (laughs) But I was very happy to be involved with that. That's the NY Phil story. It's on the same podcast player, of course, that you found our show on. By the way, Lenny loved WQXR, so there you go. Mm, that's great. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for more information and images of Leonard Bernstein, including a list of some of the musical tracks that you heard today on the show. And of course, we'll have podcast players of some of the past episodes that we've produced that tie right into the subject, including, of course, our Lauren Bacall show. I'll even have a Spotify playlist themed Ooh. for this show if you want to like dig further into some of the musical pieces that we just mentioned in the show. Getting fancy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a big thank you to those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com. On this week's episode of Side Streets, the last Side Streets of 2023, we'll do a kind of Bowery Boys wrapped Speaking of a Spotify (laughs) reference, I'm going to look back on the year and give you some context on how and why we chose to do particular shows and also what you have to look forward to in 2024. That's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Plus, we'd love to have you join us in the streets of New York on one of our small group walking tours. Head over to Bowery Boys Walks to find out about upcoming tours taking place in many of New York's most historic neighborhoods, including our our hit Gilded Age Mansions tour. There's a new tour about 1830s New York. We, of course, have a Grand Central tour that's nice in the winter. It's all indoors and many, many others. You can walk through history with our expert guides over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. And finally, portions of the show were edited by Kieran Gannon. And we want to thank Kieran for helping make the show sound better than ever this year. So thank you very much for listening and a happy, happy 2024 to all of you. Yes, happy holidays. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs>